This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 26, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, the shape of the epidemic has changed dramatically since COVID-19 first appeared. At the beginning of the epidemic, not only were there many infections, but hospitals were overwhelmed with very sick patients. And this was happening despite social measures that undoubtedly slowed the rate of transmission. It's difficult to determine the precise magnitude of transmission at this point, but even if you look just at the measured numbers, there's still a lot of infection occurring. But the rate of hospitalization and death has plunged, even though we've dropped many of the social measures that were implemented early in the outbreak to prevent transmission. So have we just gotten a lot better at treating this illness? Steve, I think the answer is yes, we have gotten a lot better at treatment, but that's not clearly responsible for the differences that you're noting. I don't know the numbers, but I suspect that only a very small proportion of infected people right now are receiving any specific therapies. The fact is that many fewer people are showing up at their doctor's offices or emergency departments, even though they haven't been treated. So, Steve, I think you're right in that testing has gotten a whole lot better compared to two years ago, even a year ago. And we also have new ways of doing surveillance, such as in wastewater which allows us to understand in communities what's going on as opposed to individuals. Taken together, it's clear that there's lots of transmission going on in communities, but very little hospitalizations. And Eric, as you say, this is unlikely due to treatment in that small numbers of individuals are being treated compared to what these types of data are telling us, suggesting that severity of illness may just be less in part related to increased ability to detect who has infection as opposed to who's hospitalized with infection. Certainly, vaccination has had an impact, but there remains a significant percentage of the population in many countries, including the United States, who haven't received the vaccine. And we spent the past couple of months talking about how vaccines have become less effective over time. So are vaccines responsible for the decrease in hospitalizations? Well, in part, yes, they certainly deserve a lot of credit. Vaccines have had less of an ability to block infection and illness, but those who receive vaccines continue to be at far less risk of severe disease than people who are not vaccinated and who have not had prior infection. But there is more to this. The very high rate of prior infection in the population at large means that there are high levels of immunity, even among those who have not been vaccinated. So Eric, as you point out, there's hybrid immunity. And so it's difficult to measure how much hybrid immunity is in the community. But there are other factors that may be impacting severity of illness. There's the variance. You know, as the virus evolves, does that change its virulence and the degree of illness it causes? And there's also something that's probably even harder to measure, maybe some degree of selection. And what I mean by that is those individuals in the community who may be more at risk for becoming severely ill may have become severely ill. And therefore, it may change the population at risk for severe illness. So there are a variety of factors that may be impacting how much severe illness we're seeing. But it is important for us to realize that at least on the hospitalization side, there is a decreased evidence of severe illness. I think you're pointing out an important point here. It's not a random sampling of people who've been vaccinated. In fact, it tends to be people at the highest risk of disease, along with others. And so that 
means that the effect of vaccination could be disproportionate because those are the people who are most likely to go on to develop severe illness. I'd like to talk about a study that tries to quantitate the relative magnitude of protection offered by prior infection versus vaccination in the Omicron era. But before we get there, Lindsay, let me ask you your thoughts about why vaccines that we use today are good at limiting disease severity, but not so effective at preventing disease in the first place. So Steve, I think that there are some important concepts here for us to frame carefully. As we think about vaccine effectiveness and disease, we need to think about what our definitions are. And the original definition or the classic definition that we all reflect on when we hear about vaccine efficacy has to do with breakthrough infection, not severe illness. This definition was needed two years ago to understand if the vaccines worked and from a regulatory standpoint to determine efficacy to allow rigorous scientific data to guide the approval and authorization processes and then clinical use. We as a community have been imprinted on what efficacy is or disease is with COVID. I think as your question alludes to, we need to reframe that. I'm not certain that the goal is to eradicate transmission, to eradicate SARS-CoV-2 as we did with smallpox, but rather the goal is to prevent and minimize severe illness such as hospitalization and death. And there, the vaccines seem to remain quite effective. However, there is continued transmission, which is what we often consider disease as you frame it. I consider that infection. I consider disease reflecting more severe illness and infection being I acquired COVID or SARS-CoV-2, but it was mild to asymptomatic and transient in nature. And that there's a fair amount, as the prior discussion about wastewater and community transmission reflects. And this may reflect sort of evolutionary principles in the sense that the virus wants to figure out how to spread. We, people, want to prevent getting seriously ill. Mild illness is not that big a deal. And therefore, we have to reset how we think about vaccine failure or disease in my view, to that which is severe illness, which I still think is remarkably decreased compared to two years ago. But transmission is not, and that may in part be related to compartment issues such as the mucosal or respiratory compartment versus the systemic compartment, something we've discussed before, but for which we don't have adequate studies to really inform our thinking. So overall, Steve, I actually think that the current community immunity substantial parts of which are from vaccines, remain quite effective at preventing severe illness, though we need to stay vigilant as new variants emerge. Lindsay, I'd add that this is not that unusual a situation. There are several infections where it appears that very high levels of immunity, usually measured as high levels of serum antibody, can prevent infection. But as those levels fall, while people can get infected, they don't tend to get severely ill. The classic example of that is malaria, but it's true for respiratory viruses other than SARS-CoV-2 and gastrointestinal viruses. So it's not that unusual a situation. And remember that we are seeing pretty good replication by vaccines of what we see from natural infection. So Eric, along those lines, that's why many of us, myself included, are worried 
that this year's flu season may turn out to be one of the more severe flu seasons, in part related to the lack of infection and boosting in general that may have occurred over the last two years, in part related to our masking and other behaviors that decrease transmission of respiratory viruses. I think we often don't appreciate subclinical infection with respiratory viruses that leads to boosting of the immune response. Of course, with flu, there's often a fair amount of severe illness, which is why better vaccines in that space are also needed for both systemic and mucosal immunity. Let's get back to the study we published today, which looked at disease risk in what was a real captive population. How did this study work? The captive population you're referring to, Steve, is inmates in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation prison system and the somewhat less captive prison staff. This is an attractive setting to do this kind of study since infection rates are very high in these congregate settings. And at least for prisoners, there is limited mobility and good record keeping. Vaccines and boosters have been offered to prisoners and there have been very high rates of uptake with almost 80% of them having received three doses of vaccine as of late August, 2021. Staff, however, have had much lower rates of uptake with about 40% having received three doses at that same time point. Omicron was first detected in December of that year with several large outbreaks. The investigators included those who'd been incarcerated or employed since the beginning of January of 2021 to ensure that they had complete records. For vaccinated individuals, they only included those who'd received mRNA vaccines. There was very intensive testing during the period that were studied in the prison system with both risk-based testing and for some amount of time, weekly screening, all by RT-PCR. In addition, there are very good records of vaccination. Thus, the investigators can combine all of these data to estimate the risk of infection in those who've been vaccinated, had prior infection, or both. The study included more than 75,000 people who had an infection rate of more than 30%. So there was an excellent opportunity to get significant numbers. So Eric, as you point out, these kinds of congregate settings where there is exquisite ability to monitor for key parameters, such as vaccinations and testing for incident infection, allow us to have systematic data to provide a better inference about transmissibility. So it's incredibly valuable that investigators have leveraged this community to help us understand transmission of these newer variants. And what did these investigators find? Half of the residents and a third of the staff had had previous infections, mostly during the wave of infections caused by the Delta variant. Two doses of vaccine had very limited effectiveness, less than 20%, but that rose to about 40% with three doses. Prior infection without vaccination produced protection rates of a little less than 30% for those infected before the Delta era and close to 40% for those with likely Delta infections. Combining infection and vaccination rose as high as about 85% effectiveness for those with three doses and a prior Delta infection. The numbers were somewhat different, but broadly similar in the staff. Altogether, it seems that both vaccination and prior infection with other viral variants are protective, but the combination is very highly effective in this population with high rates of infection. The study didn't separate out severe disease, but it's likely that protection would look even better given what we discussed earlier. Eric, as we talked about earlier, these data show us vaccine failure 
and rates of it in the context of prior immunity for acquisition of SARS-2. What is not as easily assessed, as you note, is the severity of illness, likely due to limited amount of severe illness. So I think as we report data and as we understand the implications of vaccination and subsequent infection, clearly delineating what's breakthrough with mild to asymptomatic illness versus severe illness, I think is very important. So that in our lexicon, as we think about vaccine failure and prior immunity failure, it's in relation to severity of illness rather than acquisition of infection. What we don't know here related to these high levels now of hybrid immunity in this community, if there are differences in the sequence of events, vaccine infection, infection, vaccine, and I think that there will be much to learn about how we elicit the strongest immune response. And then even if you've had natural infection, the value of subsequent vaccination to boost the infection to make it stronger and more durable, I think are important issues that will emerge as we better understand hybrid immunity and how to augment protection, especially against severe illness. Those are good points, Lindsay. I think the easiest take-home message from this is that vaccines offer protection and that prior infection offers protection. Both of them, however, are limited. And it's clear that combining, at least in the sequence that occurred naturally in the study, is far better. And it's likely that whatever sequencing occurs, infection followed by vaccination, vaccination followed by infection, or some sort of mixture, it's always going to be better to have both than just have one in terms of ultimate protection, either measured by infection or measured by severe disease. This study, as you said, was performed early during the Omicron era, and it ended this past April. So do we have any idea whether the findings would still apply now? I think it's likely that the numbers would be different if the study were performed now, but which direction the numbers would go in is really a question. On one hand, we would expect more fading of the immune response given a longer time from vaccination or from infection. On the other hand, many people have had infections with Omicron by now, and some have received a bivalent vaccine, both of which might produce better cross-protection against the subvariants that are circulating today. As you said in earlier podcasts, it's difficult to get a very precise handle on the number of infections that are occurring today, but it's clear that the number of hospitalized people continues to be fairly low. So overall, I think we remain in a pretty good position, even if the statistics are going to be different. Eric and Steve, as we go into winter and much of the community has relaxed masking and other behaviors that decrease transmission, we need to think carefully about how best to augment immunity, as that is something we carry with us 24-7. And their vaccines is something we control. We can choose to get vaccinated and augment our immunity. And I think as the infection force is likely to increase over the next two, three months, and as variants are likely to emerge that have some degree of immune escape, the importance of enhancing an individual's immune protection, I think, is really important. And that's where vaccination and vaccination with the bivalent boosters that are available makes sense as a way to decrease the potential morbidity of what many of us are concerned will be a wave over the holidays. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.